Zechariah chapter 6 and 7 this evening. Let me just refresh your memory a little bit if um, you're just diving into the book with us. The setting for the book of Zechariah is the children of Israel um, coming back from Babylon after 70 years in captivity. The year is about 520, 518 B.C., and Zechariah is writing to them primarily to encourage them. When they left Jerusalem 70 years earlier, uh, they destroyed Solomon's temple, one of the most beautiful buildings ever built, and probably one of the most expensive. And they burned Jerusalem to the ground. They've been in Babylon for 70 years. And now they can come back, but what do they come back to? Their city is completely burned. Um, nothing but remains of Solomon's temple. They're there for about 16 years, and they are discouraged. They get up, they look around in the morning, and um, Zechariah's attempt to get them back on their feet is to point out the importance of having the temple. We'll be talking about um, the rebuilding of Solomon's temple tonight. But he doesn't rebuke them. He does it in a form of trying to encourage them um, because, like many people in our country today, I mean, if you don't know the Lord with what's going on in our country today and have an understanding that this is all part of the Lord's plan to bring about the rebuilding of what is called the next temple, which is the tribulation temple. Um, the people here, when we get down to um, verse 9 through 15, this is going to be one of the most important verses for us to understand if you want a Jewish mindset on the rebuilding of the temple because they are not going to get it. And the thinking of where they're not going to get it comes from Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. We'll, we'll be getting there shortly. So what we have is we're going to, uh, from 1 to 6, there is a series that the Lord gives to Zechariah and their visions. Some of them not too difficult to uh, understand. Um, back in chapter 3, it talks about the branch. And we, when we were there, we went and explained the branch. Well, the branch is going to be in Zechariah chapter 6 again tonight. And we know that it's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, um, that he was uh, the root of, of Jesse. And uh, he would be responsible for the day in verse 10 of chapter 3, the day, says the Lord of hosts, where everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Here he's talking about people who are living in ashes. He said, but the day is coming when the branch comes. Temple's going to be rebuilt. And it's going to be like it's prophesied in Ezekiel 35 and 36, that it's going to be like the Garden of Eden. And this was mind-boggling to them. So pick up on the way he's talking to them. He's trying to encourage them. In chapter 4, we made the direct connection between the book of Revelation with the two olive trees. And um, this goes to Revelation chapter 11, talking about the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. 
And then it actually says in the cross-reference, that which was prophesied um, by Zechariah. And so we have this direct connection. Um, Revelation 11 is a fulfillment of chapter four of the two olive trees. Uh, One of Calvary Chapel's foundational scriptures is in this, and it's in verse um, six, and um, Zerubbabel wanted to know how this was gonna happen. Zechariah, in the word of the Lord, to Zerubbabel, it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Um, Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a, um, a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace, grace. And, um, Verse nine, the hand of Zerubbabel has laid the foundation of the temple. He will finish it. Well, this is really encouraging because if I'm them and I'm looking at the mess that's around me, I'm thinking this is never gonna get done. Not in my lifetime. But this prophecy here says Zerubbabel laid the foundation and he's gonna finish it. And it was finished like some 16 years later. So this would have been a word of encouragement to them also. Last week we talked about uh, the the flying scroll and the woman in the basket. And it's really God's judgment, especially the woman in the the basket versus, or the ephah actually. And remember we did a Bible study on on, uh, Dubai. And it says that when the basket is ready, you'll carry it to the plains of Shinar. It has to be a port city. Ancient Babylon um, is not a port city. It's inland. So it has to be on the coast. And um, we actually did a side study, so to speak, and just talked about Dubai as, as uh, being the economic center when the time comes after the rapture. It will become the economic center of the world. But basically, it's in a negative form. Because when you go to Revelation chapter 18, the Lord is speaking against and giving warning, saying Babylon, Babylon has fallen and has become a habitation of foul spirits and demons. But it was, it's going to be the economic center of the world. And it makes me wonder. I don't know if it makes you wonder. Well, where are we in all of this? Well, there's a lot of possible scenarios. And we might be watching one of them unfold right now. I'm not saying it is. Um, I know this for sure. I know there's going to be a one world government. There's going to be a one world money system and a one world religion. I've been teaching that for 40 years. But I haven't seen it unfold so exponentially since January of this year. I mean, take just January from this year to where we are right now over the last 40 years. That's how quickly this is unfolding. So we know it's gonna happen. But now, um, I think it's Sweden, might be Switzerland, they've gone cashless. They've already gone cryptocurrency. You've heard about the Bitcoin. And um, uh, they, they want to get rid of um, um, money, period. I can really, get really sidetracked here talking about how uh, John Kennedy wanted to go
go back to the gold standard and um, get rid of get rid of the Federal Reserve and the big banks and all that. And it gave, when I began to research that, um, it gave me a whole new insight into why JFK was assassinated. And the only other president that has tried to do that since then is guess who? Talked about it. Yeah, President Trump. So you better pray for his security. <laughs> All right, don't want to get too sidetracked there. But the bottom line is we know it's going to happen, but how we watch it happen is another thing. All right, as we get into chapter 6, um, again, chapter 6 is going to be the end of eight visions. And we'll look at two of them tonight, the four chariots and the crowning of Joshua. In chapter 7, um, we switch gears and we're no longer talking about visions. <clears throat> but um, their attitude in their heart as it came, as the Lord is really wanting their hearts more than anything else. So it's, it'll be a change of thought. Um, before I get into this, <clears throat> if we follow uh, the series of judgments of the first seven visions that were given to Zechariah, they all tie into some way or degree into the, the tribulation period and God judging the Gentile nations, especially as we look at these four chariots here tonight. Um, and the reason I bring that up um, is leading up to the judgment of the tribulation, but then this will be the second time we'll see Zechariah talking about the branch and the rebuilding of the temple. And so he, there's a short-term, past tense, future tense judgment that's going to eventually lead to um, Jesus establishing uh, the thousand-year millennial reign. Now, for us, this is very important to understand. We understand that God has a game plan. Uh, next on the um, eschatological list is the rapture of the church. And that's really going to turn the world upside down. And it's going to set up um, the great tribulation period, which I'll be talking about in a little bit. Of all the visions and prophecies in the Bible, I would say chapter 6, 1 through 8, is the most difficult one I've ever run across. And when I read it, I went, huh? So I started researching. I wanted to know what other commentators were thinking about it. So I thought I'd go to Pastor Chuck first. So I Googled it up, Pastor Chuck, Zechariah chapter six. He starts out by saying, of all the prophecies I've ever read, this is one of the most difficult ones I've ever tried to figure out. And then he went on to explain, if the scripture isn't clear on it, don't speculate. But that doesn't stop people from speculating. They're gonna speculate anyway. But Chuck basically said, I'm not gonna touch this one. Not enough information. There's connections, and I went, uh, one of my other favorite ones you're well aware of is J. Vernon McGee. And um, Chuck is saying, I'm not gonna go there. And I'm just gonna let that one sit, and um, I'm, I'm waiting for the Lord to give me more information on it. But I'm not gonna teach from the pulpit something I'm not sure about. And he goes in to give examples. Well, J. Vernon was a little more liberal, and he gave a couple of suggestions openly stating 
This is a tough one. And um, he said, some people believe, well, let's, let's read the first eight verses, then I'll come back and comment. <clears throat> this would be vision number uh, seven. Then I turned and raised my eyes, and I looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and uh, the mountains were mountains of bronze. That's going to be significant, I think. Uh, with the first chariot, now, now these are chariots, and right away we're thinking about the four horsemen in Revelation chapter 6. Uh, the first chariots were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, and the third chariot white horses, with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, well, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are four spirits of heaven who go out from the earth. They're stationed before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horse is going towards the north. The white are going after them. The dapple are going towards the south country. Then the strong steeds went out eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me saying, see, those who go towards the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. End division. And I can see why Chuck threw up his hands and says, I'm not going there. Not enough information. Um, there there is a terminology that's called expositional constancy. It's a big, fancy theological word. Basically, if I, I usually like to use the example of the sower and the seed because in one is in several of the Gospels, but only one of the Gospels talks about the seed being the word of God that gets planted in a person's heart. So every time you hear a Bible study or every time you're witnessing to somebody, we call that sowing seeds. Taking the word of God, throwing it out there. And in the parable of the sower, it falls on four different types of soil. Well, in the parable explains that the, the soil is your heart and the type of heart that you have. In the first one, it said the, the seed um, fell on hard ground. And um, uh, the birds came and ate it, and it was no longer. Uh, you've heard the Christianese terminology, getting rooted and grounded in your walk with the Lord. What does that mean? That means you start to understand what the Bible's talking about. And you, the deeper your roots go, you understand that there's going to be spiritual warfare. Now, if I lead somebody to the Lord, and um, I like to tell them, Good things. Your name's been put into the book of life. Do you know that angels are rejoicing right now because of what you just did? I said, that's the good news. Now let me tell you the bad news. You have, now you have two natures, not just one. You have one nature that's only desiring the things of the flesh to satisfy the appetites of the flesh. And now you're born again and you're gonna have this hunger for the things of the spirit. Now the enemy knowing when a Christian is most vulnerable, that would be when they're a baby. So now the seed, the word of God, falls on a baby's heart. And then it says in this one, then the birds of the air came, ate the seed, and it was no longer. So that person never, never got saved. The second one 
is the ones that uh, fell upon um, stony ground. And they're the ones that didn't get any root to it at all. And again, this is where the birds come in. Well, the disciples went, what in the world are you talking about? Explain the parable to us. And so the Lord does. He says the first one is the word of God. It's being sown in a person's heart. But then comes the devil. Oh, the devil. Or a demon. And takes the seed out of that person lest they should believe and be saved. Now, in that particular one, I think it's in Luke, it tells us that the bird is none other than a dynamic, demonic force. I like to put it in terms like this. Let's say you're married and... um, uh, you get saved, but your wife isn't saved or your husband isn't saved. And you come home and you say, honey, the most wonderful thing just happened to me today. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. That is wonderful. And she said, you did what? And in her thinking that all the things they used to do they're no longer going to be doing. Jesus said, anybody that loves father or mother, sister or brother, husband or wife more than me is not fit for the kingdom. Now I'll you're in a state of being given an ultimatum. You can either stand in there and say, this is truth, no matter what the consequences, I can't deny Jesus Christ as my savior. Even if it means my wife is out the door, my husband is out the door, the guys at work are giving me a hard time, usually that's the form the spiritual warfare comes in. Or you're one of those holy rollers now. You're one of those religious bigots one of those one-way-only people and stuff like that. And a lot of people can't stand up to it and they crumble to it. All right, I'm using that. Let's go back to the word expositional constancy. If a bird is the devil in one parable and the same parable is being told in another parable but it doesn't talk about the bird or the devil, it just said the seed was stolen, you know that expositional constancy is a bird is the devil, even though it doesn't explain it in the other parable. Are you guys with me on this one? Okay, good. Um, I'm going to use it here because it's also true with metals. In the verse here, we read, and trying to understand this parable, if you go back, it says that the the horseman went between the two mountains of bronze. Now, bronze is always an example of judgment. And I'll give you an example of that. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born again, he says, just as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And when you go back and read that story, people were getting bit by snakes, They were dying because they were mumbling and complaining. And Moses, pray for us. And the Lord answered his prayer. He said, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get a pole. And then I want you to get a serpent, a bronze serpent, and put it on the pole. Tell the people to go look at the pole. And everybody who looks at it will live. And everybody who doesn't look at it will die. You had two different attitudes going on at that place there. But my point is, um, it's a picture of sin being judged. And if you look at it, it's a sign of your faith. Now put yourself in their position. 
You've just been bitten by a snake. What do I do, Moses? Well, the Lord says, if you just go look at this serpent, this bronze serpent here, that if you look at it, you'll live. And um, that person would say, what do I got to lose? Another person comes and says the same thing, and they go, are you crazy? I'm dying here, and you want me to go look at a stick and some serpent on it? And he doesn't do it. Such is the case with the gospel today. But my point is, bronze, without exception, is symbolic, emblematic of judgment. And Nicodemus wanted to know how to be born again. And he says, well, Nick, it's like this. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He was talking about himself being put on a pole and uh, sin being judged. So there's the analogy. And so one commentator, um, this would be McGee, where he says, um, the two mountains are mountains of brass. The majority of the outstanding commentators agree that these two mountains of Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. So Mount Zion's on one side, Mount of Olives on the other. Um, and in between you have the Kidron Valley. And I like what he says because he doesn't know either. So he's reading a lot of other commentators. <laughs> and some taters are more common than others. You know that, right? Just see it if you're awake. <clears throat> and he goes on to explain that they go north and they go south, but they don't go east. He's talking about the judgment of the people that came against Israel, or at least this is his take on it, or the best he can do, by saying that those that came against Israel to the north. Um, if you go east of Israel, there's nothing but desert until you get to the great fertile crescent that's above it. But if you go north, that's where you have life and, and growth, so on and so forth. If you go south, you have the same thing, all the way to, to the ocean, to Egypt. But if you go east, we don't have any of these horses going east. Why? The Mediterranean Sea is east of Jerusalem. So it makes sense. And all I'm going to say is, and I leave it at that, he would sum it up by saying, that uh, this period that he's referring to is a great tribulation period. No one today is emphasizing how frightful the great tribulation is going to be. That's going to be one of our goals. It's not going to be a pretty picture. As we talked about already, what, two billion people already dying in the fourth seal in Revelation chapter, chapter six. And it only gets worse from here. So who likes to talk about such things? Certainly not me. You don't like to hear about it, but the problem is it's true and it's going to happen. And so the bottom line in this first vision is God is going to judge and um, this idea of giving his spirit rest and peace is that judgment will fall upon, upon those who came against his people. I guess if you're taking notes and you want to cross-reference where Jesus talks about rewards he says if you've done it to the least of these my brethren you've done it unto me 
I was on, on the internet today talking about just how desperate it's getting in, in Jerusalem right now. People are in dire straits. A um, couple stories I read, they don't have food for their kids. And, and uh, so it's an organization that's doing the right thing by raising money to help keep them alive. Calvary Appleton uh, was involved with our own little project with people that we know personally in Jerusalem. And there, I got another email just recently just being thanked on behalf of them to share with you their appreciation. Um, let's go on to the next vision. Verses 9 through 14 is a whole lot easier to interpret. <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Receive the gifts from the captives, all right? Where are the captives coming from? Babylon. Uh, from Heldiah, Tobajiah, Jedediah, who have come from Babylon. And go to the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and the gold, make an elaborate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoiadad, the high priest. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Let's just stop and take this. We're introduced to three guys. Uh, They've come back from Babylon, and they're instructed. They have different roles. One of them is a a Levite and a priest. And um, uh, they're told to make this crown and put it on Joshua. Now Joshua, when translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, is actually Jesus. And what we have down here in the next verse is, behold, the man whose name is the branch. Um, Does all of your Bibles have the branch in capital letters? It should. Okay, so again, this branch here is the same branch in chapter 3, verse 8. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. And he's the one that's going to eventually establish his kingdom where everybody sits under their own fig tree. So we have a picture of a prophet, priest, and king. And the Lord really was a fulfillment of all three of these. And they're told to take, and then verse 12, then speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. I'm going to come back to that in just a bit. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory, and he shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest to his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Okay, let's turn to, um, they're talking about uh, the branch here actually being the Messiah to the people that he's talking about. No problem for you and I as Gentiles thinking that Jesus is a prophet, priest, and king. We don't have a problem with that. But it's a big problem if you're Jewish. Turn with me to... um, um, the book of Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament. We're not sure of the author of the book of Hebrews. I personally believe it's Paul. 
And he's, if, if they're Hebrews, what does that mean? It means they're Jewish. And if you're of the Jewish mindset and you're talking about the Messiah and you're saying that um, Jesus is the Messiah, they say, no way. Now for us Gentiles, no problem. But if you're Jewish, you can only be a priest if you're from the tribe of Levi. So if you're, now you gotta explain if Jesus is a Messiah, uh-uh, he can't be. He has to be a Levite. And so chapter seven of Hebrews is Paul talking to Jewish people, explaining that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not from the Levitical line of the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe or Levitical line of Melchizedek. So let's read chapter seven and I'll explain a little bit about him because he was a king. Uh, Abraham is coming back from his victory. He's captured and uh, brought back um, Lot and he's coming through Salem, which was eventually to become Jerusalem. So we read in verse one, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem. Okay, so he's a king priest of the Most High God. So here we got um, a king, but he's also a priest. That's something else you couldn't be. King David couldn't be a priest. He had priests and Levites minister and prophesy to him, but he could only hold the office of king, not Melchizedek. Melchizedek, we're told, is a king and a priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed them, and to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all being translated king of Salem, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, uh, meaning king of peace. Now, the genealogy of Melchizedek, when you go back and read the story, says he has no genealogy. He has no beginning. And he has no end. And you go, wait a second here. Who are we talking about? What we're talking about is what we call a Christophanes. It would be an Old Testament appearance of the Lord himself being prophet, priest, and king. And uh, it says here, without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remaining priest continually. All right, now you gotta explain the two Jewish people why Jesus, who's from the tribe of Judah, is Messiah, but not after the Levitical line, but after the order of Melchizedek. Is everybody with me with that? Us Gentiles could care less, but if you're Orthodox in your Judaism, no way Jesus could be the Messiah, because He comes from the tribe of Judah. It's gotta be from the line of Melchizedek. If you turn the page and read verse 17, for he he testifies, he's quoting now Psalm 110 verse four. You are a priest forever, he's referring to Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek. Go down to verse 21. And inasmuch as he has not made priests without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, 
but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so here, I'm not gonna get into it any more than that, except let's go back to um, um, Zechariah. And let me draw your attention to the branch and what he does. It tells us here that when the branch comes, from his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. Is that clear enough? When the branch comes, what's he gonna do? He's gonna build the temple of the Lord. This scripture right here, turn to, with me to Ezekiel chapter 41. I'll give you a moment to get there. And tell you right now, we've talked about, we talk about it quite a bit here at Calvary because of my friendship with um, Rabbi Richmond and the Temple Mount Institute in the um, Jewish quarter of the old city. And, and as long as I've known Rabbi Richmond, he's dedicated his whole life um, getting the implements ready for the third temple. And um, being Orthodox, he's on the reestablished Sanhedrin in Israel. He's become very famous over, over the years. And in chapter 41, it is a very detailed account of the oversight and the dimensions of the temple. In chapter 38 and 39, you have the Magog War. But then from chapter 40 all the way to 48, it's detailed information. 40, 41 and 42 and 43 is the return of the glory back to the temple. And so we're talking here, future tense, about the millennial temple that Jesus is going to build. Now, here's the problem. And this is where Israel right now, and I think a lot of people, remember I mentioned um, that we know where the Ark of the Covenant is, and um, we do, and uh, it's common knowledge at the Temple Mount Institute where it is. Imagine with everything that's going on right now, they just decided to bring it out someday. Uh, do you, if, if you were um, a secular Jew, do you think that would cause you to maybe rethink some things? <laughs> and uh, have a big surge of uh, people returning to Israel because now they're talking, we got the Ark of the Covenant Let's get on with it. And um, Rosh Hashanah is coming up shortly, and this will be the first time since the destruction of the temple that a shofar will be blown on the Temple Mount. That's what they're working on right now. And that's going to get a lot of people's attention also because all these thoughts, they haven't been there for 1,900 years, and now we're blowing the shofar on on the Temple Mount. And... I think it's 53 to, the last I heard, the percentage of the population in Jerusalem are in favor of rebuilding the temple. Okay, so if that's the case, and let's say um, we're reading this scripture right here, that the branch is going to rebuild the temple, and that means 
to an Orthodox Jew, this is something only the Messiah could do. Only the Messiah could rebuild the temple. So there is gonna be another temple rebuilt shortly because I think the hour is late. And um, by the way, I happen to know that it's already prefabricated and ready to go. It's not like it's gonna take years to put together. This is prefab. And when they say go, they're gonna have it done and it's gonna be done in a very, very short period of time. So now we have Daniel 9 verse 27 coming into effect where it says, he will make a covenant with many for seven years and he will allow Israel to rebuild their temple. Sacrifice will be reinstituted. Daniel 9.27 says, but in the middle of that week, he will bring an end to the offering and sacrifices. Well, in order to have offerings and sacrifices, what do you have to have? A temple. But they believe only the Messiah can build the temple. So what does that tell us? It tells me they're set up big time right now. They want peace. They just made peace with Dubai just last week. I mean, things are happening so quickly. And now this is causing a domino effect with other Arab countries wanting to make peace with Israel. So we have this scenario of events taking place. All of a sudden you have a guy come along and says, I can bring peace to the region. To me, this is going to happen right after the rapture. And he will have an answer for our disappearance. And as a result, he says, I can make this all go away and everything will be fine. All we have to do, um, it talks about in the Old Testament that Jerusalem will become a cup of trembling in the last days. That means to me, nobody has an answer how to fix the problem in the Middle East. But after the rapture, the Antichrist shows up and he says, I'm gonna allow you to build your temple. How do they perceive him? This verse right here, Zechariah 6, verse 12. The temple, you're gonna allow us to build the temple? You must be the Messiah. And that's how he's accepted. He comes on the scene as a man of peace. Remember, great arrogance and pomp and so on and so forth. But where do they get the verse that says only the Messiah can build the temple? Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 and verse 13. But that's not the, what this is referring to here. They're just being set up right now. When that's going to happen is after the seven-year tribulation, the Lord Jesus returns as King of Kings, as Lord of Lords. And then, and only then, does he have the oversight position that this verse is talking about here. Everybody with me? Pretty much? Okay, let's go on. Um, Verses 14 through 15. Now the elaborate crown shall be from... a memorial in the temple of the Lord from Helam, Tobijah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Even those who are far away shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. He's projecting for them, trying to motivate them, to be serious about their own job of rebuilding the temple. Uh, Chapter seven is something I wanna tackle and get through yet tonight. So let's turn to 
chapter 7. And we're at the end of the visions. And it comes up with the whole idea now of um, what I would call a matter of the heart. And it's a question of fasting. It came... Now in the fourth year of King Darius, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the fifth month, which is uh, Shazlev, I'm probably butchering that, when the people sent Sherezir with Regum and Melech and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord. And so here's a group of men, and they're coming to the priest who are at the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophet saying, should I weep on the fifth month and fast as I've done for so many years? All right, they're making a statement. When we were all those years in Babylon, when the fifth month came around, there's even a sovereign about it. We, we played our harps and we wept and, and sang the song of Zion about... Um, their brokenheartedness, and so they would fast on the fifth month. And they say, should we keep doing that? Are you following the trade of thought? We're not there anymore, but should we still keep fasting? It's gonna be the fifth and the seventh month. And the Lord rebukes them in verse four and says, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, I want you to say to the people of the land and to the priest, when you fasted and mourned, in the fifth and seven months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Now the idea of fasting is denying the flesh so that the spirit would be stronger. And so you're not feeding the flesh, so the idea is you become stronger and your attention towards the things of the Lord. That wasn't their attitude. Well, they were fasting on the fifth and seventh month, but um, the Lord is saying, who are you doing it for? Yourself? To have some outward religious projection of yourself? And he's calling them out. He said, should you not have obeyed the, the, uh, the words of the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous? and the south and lowlands were inhabited. Why didn't you listen to the Lord? And are you really being serious now, or are you being hypocritical by showing how religious you are by fasting every fifth and seventh month? And he goes on to say, repent of your disobedience. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, execute true justice, show mercy, and compassion, everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of your uh, plan evil in his heart against his brother. He said, I don't, I don't want some outward religious obligation that made you feel good about yourself. And he's saying, by the way, I never asked you to do that in the first place. I never asked you to fast on the fifth month. I never asked you to do it in the seventh month. He was looking at their heart and saying you guys were doing it out of a, to show yourself having some sort of religious obligation. Can I give you an example? 
Okay. Ash Wednesday. What do people do? Is that in the Bible, by the way? Oh, no. But they do it. And they do it so everybody can see it, right? Oh, Ash Wednesday. Uh, what fall, what's, uh, what's right before Ash Wednesday? Fat Tuesday. <laughs> Mardi Gras. Party time. And then for the next 40 days, we have Lent. Oh, Lent, that's interesting. Is that in the Bible? No. But you visit somebody who has ashes on his head, and, and um, oh, you have ashes on your head. And um, you're outwardly showing your rel- religiosity. Is that a word? It is now. <laughs> oh, how about, now I'm going to step on some toes. How about December 25th? Did the Lord ever tell us to worship him on December 25th? No, you don't find that in the Bible. But boy, that sure bothers a lot of people because, well, that's when Jesus was born. Oh, really? I remember growing up when it was Christmas Eve, all I could think of is let's get the church thing over so we can get home and open the presents. That's what that's all about. So who is it for? Why are you, the Lord is saying, why did you fast? Were you really doing it because you loved me? You see, if you've loved me, now we're going back to um, the ones that I'm going to reward are those who showed kindness to my brethren. In other words, having a heart for the poor. That's showing that you have the heart of the Lord. If you, the Bible says if you have the means to help and you don't do it, what's the rest of that verse? How does the love of God dwell in you? He's calling them out on their condition, their heart condition. They weren't doing it because they loved God. They were doing it to show they were outwardly religious. There'd be a whole lot more true Christians today if they'd get past the hypocrisy of um, doing these outward religious signs and acts. All right, let's finish it up. They refused to... um, Verse 11, but they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law in the words which the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath has come from the Lord. So the question here as we close up this evening, I'm going to have you turn to Isaiah chapter 58. We just got enough time to get through it. Isaiah chapter 58, which deals with the whole subject of fasting and true worship. And I'm just going to read the scriptures and let them speak for themselves. Isaiah 58, cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sin. Yet they, seek, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation, they did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinances of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of, the, of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and have you not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you have not taken notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you found pleasure and exploited all of your labors. 
Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. It is a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul. It is to bow down his head like a rush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes. Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? This is not the fast that I have chosen. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burden, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. It, it is not to share your bread with the hungry, uh, and that you bring your house um, the poor and the cast out, when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then your light shall break forth like the morning and your healing shall spring speedily and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your regard. Then you shall call and then the Lord will answer and when you cry, then he will hear. Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of finger and speaking wickedness. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. Remember they're saying in the beginning here, haven't you seen us doing all this fasting? Haven't you been watching? Haven't you been observing? And the Lord's saying basically, yeah but your motive was all wrong. What he's looking for here is uh, helping those um, that have the needs. Those who are among you, verse 12, shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of better generations, and you shall be called the repair of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my most holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorably and shall honor him and not doing your own ways nor finding your own pleasures nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And then I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father and the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Um, we have a small part to do with what the Lord is saying right here. There's a teacher down in the school in Hitch. Her name is uh, Madam Magdal. Magdal? Davis? Magdal? Magda. Magda. And um, uh, she's one of the teachers down there. And she lives in Hinch. And the place that she lives in with other family members was so deplorable, she wouldn't even invite people to come over. The living conditions were that bad. And somebody got word of it, and um, she said she'd been saving some money, and she got enough to get the land started. Well, this started an email effect. What uh, Dave and Judy Glaze head up Hearts for Haiti here, Calvary Appleton, and they meet monthly. And so the word got out, and and um, finally, after how long, a couple months, Dave, that they've been working on the house, the house is done. She's got a Haitian style. 
this beautiful new home. But it's only because different pockets, maybe five or six main pockets around the country, including Calvary of Appleton, were responsible for little by little giving more and more. And now we've got this beautiful home. That's what the Lord is talking about here. He's saying, looking at somebody that has that kind of a need and actually doing something about it and not just talking about it. I will close by having the Lord talking about it in two verses. Turn with me to Matthew chapter six. And while I'm turning, I'm gonna quote Micah chapter six, verse eight. So if you're turning to Matthew chapter six, I was just there, let's go there. Come on, wait, here, there we go. Uh, Micah six, eight tells us, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And now he addresses Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching on fasting is in Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. He says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. He's referring to this group of people back in, in Zechariah, but they were still around in his time. Uh, Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their face, uh, put ashes on their forehead. Oh, no, that's not in there. That they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. They want somebody to notice. Somebody did notice. Oh, I'm so weak today. I've been fasting for the last week. I just don't have any energy left at all. Man, he, he must be some sort of godly guy to be doing stuff like that. The idea is, okay, you got your reward. But you, when you fast, I want you to wash your face and anoint your head so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But your father who sees in secret place and your father who sees it secretly will reward you openly. And so the whole idea of the the correction of chapter seven of Zechariah is they're back in the land. He's trying to encourage them and motivate them and and they get all of a sudden sidetracked asking these questions. Well, now that we're back, you know, should we continue with this fasting thing on the fifth and seventh month? Well, that was all show. And he says that wasn't real when you were doing it in the first place. No different than the, the hypocrites uh, here in, um, in, as the Lord teaches on it in fasting. We're at our time. My voice has been gone before I started, so let's uh, stand and close in prayer. <laughs> Lord, as we make our way through Zechariah, Lord, we do pray uh, for the, the gift of encouragement to see how you have taught Zechariah to minister to discourage people. And sometimes it needs a rebuke, and sometimes it's through encouragement, understanding that you have a plan with everything that's going on in the world right now. And at the end of the road, Lord, there's gonna be us being taken to heaven and you uh, establishing that seven-year period of time. Um, Lord, we pray, as you've taught us to pray, that your kingdom would come 
and that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All God's people said, amen.